know, for example, let's say that your your CTO or your VP of engineering leaves, and he he or she is the technical brains of the of the business. Now, what do you do? I mean, you could lose everything in that situation. Mm. So, and that happens. And, and then you have to scramble. You have to find somebody else to replace that person. So you have all of those dynamics to deal with. Mm. Then you also have the dynamics to deal with. Uh, okay, we're building a business, and uh, where are we going to get money for this business? You know, and that's likely to be at the beginning. It's going to be your money. It's going to be friends' money, your parents' money, family money. Hi, my name is Stuart Alsop, and this is my podcast, Crazy Wisdom, where I interview creative people about how they work with and manage the stress that is inherent in creative work. What I've realized over the past 10 years of my research is that anybody who is creating something of value that is significantly different from what has come before is considered crazy. Most of us have a fear, an ingrained fear of going crazy. Uh, so what I'm saying is grab onto that fear, realize that it's there, and just go with it because the problems we're going to be facing over the next 20 years require crazy people in order to solve them. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Uh, my guest here is Brett Fox, uh, and Brett is a entrepreneur, a former CEO of, of Touchstone um, uh, uh, Semiconductors, and a, currently a coach. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about what you what you find yourself doing most of these days? Yeah, what I do today is I work with startup CEOs around the world, and I essentially, to make it really simple, I help them grow their business, and that could manifest itself in many different ways from helping with strategy, with marketing, with sales, uh, all the things that you might do to, to need to grow a business or the more personal side of it in terms of dealing with uh, all the stuff that comes with being a CEO, all the problems, all the issues, all the interpersonal stuff. Mm. And when you run a business, you recognize that probably about 80% of it is interpersonal stuff. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and, and as an entrepreneur, you went through a lot of these situations yourself, right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. A lot, a lot of them, definitely a lot of, uh, near death, uh, situations at the beginning of my journey as an entrepreneur. And then definitely raising money was always stressful, uh, in what we did. And, uh, then when the company ended, that was, a uh, another story unto itself in terms of all the stuff that we had to go through. Uh. Yeah, you, you wrote this great answer on Quora, um, and I believe it was called What Are the Dark Secrets of Silicon Valley? And it's kind of like a real politic of what actually happens when you're starting a company and fund, uh, fundraising becomes difficult or fundraising is an issue. And uh, these people who, you know, I'm sure were excited in the beginning, everybody's excited about what's going to go on. But then once things start to get more difficult, like kind of the real, real story or real, uh, real things start to happen. Um, is that a good kind of explanation of, of the that, that, that's perfect yeah. uh, that, that's absolutely perfect I went through it some of the companies that I work with are going through it uh, it never ends and it's always kind of like the story of large sums of money whenever there are large sums of money involved you see the true character of people come out you mm -hmm. see all sorts of issues that you would have never expected from all sorts of sides you know not just with investors but you also have to deal with issues with your founders mm -hmm. You have to deal with issues with your employees because it's a maximum point of leverage. Mm. And that's, uh, you can kind of laugh about it and say that's what makes it fun, but it also makes it 
extremely stressful and extremely problematic in terms of what happens. And almost like manic too, because it's like one day you're, 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 um, you know, you've signed a huge customer and the next day you've got problems with your investors and it's just like up and down, up and down, sometimes even the same day. Yes, <laughs> that, that's perfectly said because that is a large part of being a startup CEO is kind of being as much as you can steady at the wheel because the highs are really high, the lows are incredibly low. And if you're bouncing around like a pinball, you know, while all this is going on, then it gets really difficult to keep your team on the straight and narrow. And then if you have a family and then you're uh, putting that stress on your wife or your husband, whatever it might be, uh, that makes it really difficult as well. So you can really have things push them out of control really fast if you're not uh, dealing with these situations properly. It's, it's very hard to do because when you're in the moment, it all seems like everything is just going to go to hell instantly. Mm. And that's, I mean, and, and sometimes things do go to hell, but oftentimes, a lot of times when I'm in that situation, uh, I'm catastrophizing. And a lot of times they're always kind of, their uh, way kind of opens up. Have you found that to be the case that oftentimes a lot of the things that founders and maybe yourself deal or think yes. happen are not going to happen? Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I, I think you find that more often than not. And usually your worst instincts are not what happens. Mm. And you have to remind yourself of that and you have to kind of stay calm during these instances because if you lose control and you lose focus of what's going on, then you can panic, then it mushrooms out of control and then it becomes a downward spiral. And then mm. you can make really bad decisions which can cause you to potentially lose your company. Mm. And I think fortunately when I was going through the stuff that I went through, I, for the most part, was able to deal with it pretty well. And I didn't, I didn't do that. I can think of a couple instances where uh, I was on the verge of doing it, but I was fortunate and then I had people around me mm. who I could trust, who I could talk to, and could give me solid advice and solid guidance when I really needed it. And that really, really helped. That's interesting. And so when you're working with somebody and they're in a really difficult situation and, um, and they, you can't help them in the moment, what do you offer to them as a way of essentially uh, saying, hey, when you're in this situation, here's some things you can do? I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, Stuart. I, the phone just rang in the background. Would you mind repeating that? Yeah, of course. Here, I'll wait. Um, go away. There we go. Go ahead. Cool. So, uh, so basically, uh, what, what, how do you work with people that you're coaching to essentially uh, prepare them for those situations where, you know, they're on their own and they're in a high stress situation? Is there anything that you kind of tell them um, that can help them in those situations? Because they're not going to be able to, to turn to you in that moment when it's high stress situation, right? Interestingly enough, the way I work with people is... I try and tell them, first of all, in, in those situations, it, it's, it's very simple advice. As best you can, you know, take a deep breath is, is one of the first things. And then the way I work with people is, if need be, it's not just, you know, I'll talk to people, you know, an hour every other week or whatever it might be. Uh, the way I work with people is if there's an urgent issue, and definitely it, it typically comes around fundraising or personnel issues are the two big ones that I always see and somebody needs to talk to me, then I find a way to talk to them, even if it's for five minutes just to talk to whatever the issue is. And then you can provide your wisdom, your insight of what's going on and kind of help them and, and guide them through that. Uh, mm -hmm. and, that's, and I found that to be really helpful for people because people sometimes just want to have 
somebody to talk to mm. and, and just tell, just to be able to hear themselves think yeah. and then to be able to be reassured, you know what, you're doing the right thing. You're on the right track. In fact, I just had this happen with an entrepreneur, entrepreneur I've been working with, uh, this past week who had a problem where one of his co-founders, he was going to have to let go. And all we needed to do was just talk for 20 minutes and just reason out that he was doing the right thing. And then mm. everything moved on. Mm. And so besides co-founder issues, what are some other personal issues that a lot is very common? Uh, the sad ones are when you let an employee go yeah. and, uh, and the unforeseen consequences of letting an employee go, everything from sexual harassment, mm. uh, which I've had to deal with more often than I ever would have expected, mm. uh, to issues with letting an older employee go who was a gun lover who then said, I'm coming. And uh, I um, am on my way because we need to talk. Uh, that was a really scary one that I had to work with somebody on a couple months ago. Whoa. And what do you do then? Yeah. Uh, because that's somebody's life now. And then we had to do everything from make sure that his team was okay to then make sure that the wife of this person was okay to make sure that the gun box was locked, the gun safe, excuse me, was locked, mm. uh, to also call the suicide hotline to help work through all the issues regarding making sure that this person didn't take his life. Uh, and then to work through the solution over the next several weeks to make sure that this person was going to be okay. Mm. And, you know, fortunately uh, it, it worked out, but mm. those are the scary ones. Yeah. Yeah. That talk about high stress situations. That seems like a very stressful one. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and so, uh, fundraising, can you talk more about the stress, stresses that are related in terms of fundraising? Yeah. Um, the, the, the stress is always, you know, when you look at it and, uh, when, for people who haven't raised money, uh, most people think it's really easy hmm. and it's unbelievably difficult because the odds are about, depending upon the VC fund that you might talk to, if you're raising money from professional investors, it's anywhere from hundred to one to 300 to one if you get a face-to-face -face meeting that that investor is going to give you money, mm. which means that just to get in the door is hard enough to get a term sheet from one investor is an unbelievable achievement to get multiple term sheets is at the same time is, a, is an incredible achievement. Most people don't get that. And I think it's hard for people on the outside when it seems so easy to understand that it's really difficult and you really have to have, uh, your game there and you have to be doing the right things and you need this combination of you know a great story a great team and a fundable idea mm. and the reality is is that most startups aren't fundable you know most startups are bootstrapped and there's nothing at all wrong with that mm. that's the way most people go so mm. it's very hard I mean that's just and that's just the entry right then just because you get a term sheet doesn't mean that that term sheet's going to close mm. Because now suddenly you get into, in fact, I just went through this with another founder that uh, I'm working with where he was in the process of raising $25 million, so not a, not a small amount. And uh, his existing investors, one of them didn't want him to take the money. It was good terms, good deal. But the problem that the existing investor had was he wasn't going to be on the board in this configuration mm -hmm. going forward. And it was all about his ego. Mm. had nothing to do with the business and the the founder I was working with had to navigate between the the new investors who were starting to get frustrated the inv existing investor who had this ridiculous ask and how do you solve that mm. and, and 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 what do you do and the the way that it was solved which was not perfect but 
the new investor who really loved the idea of what the company was about agreed to make it rather than a five-man board, a seven-man board, so that um, the guy would get his board seat for another year, year and a half, whatever it is, and then uh, eventually he'll fade off into the darkness. But those are things. And this one went, uh, the, the new investor said, okay, you have until midnight mm. you know, to get this. It was after dealing with this for like a week, and he finally got frustrated. He said, finally, you know what, guys, we can't get there. Either sanity comes in by midnight or um, I'm out. So this one, I'm talking to the founder all the way, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 11.30, I get a call from the, the founder. He says, well, I just had a whiskey and I'm back in the office and hopefully we'll get this closed. And 15 minutes later, um, he texted me and said the term sheet signed. Hmm. And if he hadn't gotten it done, you know, who knows what would have happened? It would have been harder for them to find more money because they weren't going to get better terms than this. So and that's, mm-hmm. that's why you go into the Quora answer, which is essentially that uh, you're, you believe you have power until you run out of money and need more money from investors. Yes. And then all of a sudden investors have all the leverage. Exactly right. So mm-hmm. that's when, you, you know, when you see people write about voting rights and having to have a majority of the board and all those things, those are really false ideas. Mm-hmm. And I think people don't understand you don't, once you take money and you continually need money, that means guess what? the investors have leverage. Now, most investors are good. They're not, they, they're not going to screw around, but there is a percentage out there which aren't, or there's a percentage where maybe your goals are different than their goals and they diverge. And in those cases, that's when you're going to have problems. And it doesn't matter whether you have 50% ownership, 60% ownership, whatever it is. If they decide that you're not the right person to run the company going forward and you need the money, guess what? You're going to lose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so what are some signs that people can watch out for that investors are driven by ego or other things that are not uh, uh, kind of in that critical path to creating the business? I think that's a, that's a great question. I think mm-hmm. the things that you need to do as a founder is before you take money, look at the people you're dealing with. There's no reason you can't do reference checks on your potential investors. Investors are gonna do it to you, by the way, and if you don't think they are, you're crazy. Mm -hmm. They'll do background checks on you, they'll do everything they can to understand who you are. Mm -hmm. Both directly, they'll ask you for references, and indirectly. Mm -hmm. There's no reason you can't look, go to their website, look at the companies they've invested in, call a couple founders, talk to them, or use your own network to find out and, and understand who you're dealing with. Then also, look at the behavior of the investors that you're working with. If the investors are treating you well, and the analogy I like to use is it's kind of like dating. You know, if you're on a first date or a second date and you're courting somebody, you're always going to be on your best behavior. Well, investing is like falling in love. And investors are either going to fall in love with you. And when they fall in love with you, they're going to be on their best behavior. So if they're doing questionable things Mm. before they take money, then guess what? They're likely to do questionable things, even more questionable things, after they take money. Mm. Are there any good questions that you can ask investors to kind of ferret out whether the, and I mean, I guess there's a lot of investors who are good at answering questions. So um, maybe there's other tips that you have in terms of really kind of maybe non-intellectual, more kind of gut feeling. Uh, how do you train your gut? I don't know those types yeah. of things. I, I think that that's also a really good question. I don't know of any off the top of my head, except my advice would be get to know the investors, spend Mm -hmm. time with them, talk to them, learn about them, see if you enjoy the relationship with them because Mm -hmm. you're going to be working with these people likely for the next seven to 10 years of your life. Mm -hmm. 
it isn't going to be quick. It's going to take time in today's world. So if you don't feel comfortable, then understand you may have no choice because many people don't have a choice. Then you have a choice of either you're going to take money from this particular fund with this particular investor, or you're likely not to get money. And then you have to decide, are you willing to take that risk? Mm -hmm. And that's, that's really what you would have to do. But if you have a choice, then it's not suddenly about, you know, maybe the best deal terms uh, because the deal terms are pretty much going to be similar. It's going to be more about which investor you feel is more aligned with what you want, which investor do you feel like you have more of a personal bond with, which investor is, is treating you the way that you feel like you want to be treated. Those are the things that I would look for. Mm. And, um, so can you talk more about why there's been this change in how long you're expected to, or how long it's likely going to take to have an exit or to have sort why it's the 70, 10 year frame? Cause it, uh, in your answer on Quora and what you just said just now makes it seem like this has been a recent change. Is that true? Uh, I don't know whether it's been recent. I think it's been going longer for a, a longer time. I think mm. it's more about the Sarbanes-Oxley requirements than it is about anything else. Because if you're gonna take, if, if I think about what, what are the possible exits for a company, right? It's either gonna be IPO, which a small percentage of companies do, mm. or it's gonna be some sort of acquisition. And if an acquisition takes time, uh, it, it takes time to build a company up to a size, you know, where uh, if, if it's a going to be a positive acquisition, one where the investors are gonna be happy with the, comp with the outcome and uh, the company's gonna be, gonna be happy, it takes time to build a company. Mm. So those are, I think are the two factors which are pushing things to take more time. Mm. And what are some stresses, uh, what are the, some sources of stress that are different at seed stage at series A and then at like a series D or something like that? What are the, like, cause all of those seem like they have different stresses associated with them. And that's the, yeah. the any kind of start when you're starting a company, it's like this, this, this marathon, but that a marathon that changes rapidly in its terrain. Um, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I think the, the things that go on at the beginning is you're building a team, you're building the founding team. There's more variability in what's going on just on the team level because you're trying people on. Mm -hmm. And you have this very short period of time where you're trying to figure out who fits, who doesn't. And you're going to find, unless you're really lucky, that there's going to be a founder or maybe two that doesn't work. So there's going to be some of that that's going to be changing. So you have to deal with that change, mm. which of course brings stress because if it's the wrong founder, you know, for example, let's say that your, your CTO or your VP of engineering leaves and he, he or she is the technical brains of the, of the business. Now, what do you do? I mean, you could lose everything in that situation. Mm. So, and that happens. And, and then you have to scramble. You have to find somebody else to replace that person. So you have all of those dynamics to deal with. Mm -hmm. Then you also have the dynamics to deal with, of, okay, we're building a business and uh, where are we going to get money for this business? You know, and that's likely to be at the beginning. It's going to be your money. It's going to be friends' money, your parents' money, family money, those types of things. So you're going to be dealing on a small amount of money. You're going to be living on the cheap for a period of time. So all mm -hmm. of that brings even more stress. So you have that at the beginning to deal with. Mm -hmm. Then you also have the, okay, once we have a product out, we have to get traction piece of stress because guess what? Our business model may not be perfect. And we have to go figure out what are the tweaks and changes we need to make in the business model. Mm -hmm. So now you've added that on top of all these other stresses. Mm -hmm. That's the beginning. Then mm -hmm. it moves on to the fundraising piece, which we've already talked about and all the stress involved in fundraising, plus the team's changing and you're finding that, 
you know, there are a lot of people that you're going to find as you build your company are going to be good for certain stages of it, but not all stages. Mm. And then you're going to have to do the tough things of firing people which is part of the job of being a CEO, unfortunately. It's just, it's just the way it is. And if you don't do the tough things, and this is one of the other things I find in, in working with CEOs today, is that when you put those tough things off, they always come back and bite you. Mm-hmm. Always a time when you have to do it. And it, it's, it's hard. If you've never fired people before, it's, it's not a fun thing. It's something that you should do personally. It's something you should feel really bad about when it happens because all these things are are very hard to do they're you're you're dealing with people's lives and you're messing with people's lives and that is your fault because guess what you brought them on you're the reason they're there um yes they may not have achieved what you wanted them to achieve but it's still on you Mm. so that's all more stress that adds to all this other stress that you have and then as you keep going on in the company's life, you have, the, you have more of the building the customer side of things, the business models changing, you have sales kind of changing because early stage sales is different than mid or late stage sales that you have to deal with. So you have all these things you know, coming at you and it never ends. And you have to find a way to deal with this mm. because it's, it's, part of the, it's part of what it is to run a business. Mm-hmm. And, and there's an interesting thing that I've been reading about, uh, and I'll ha- I'm going to have Justin Kalbeck on the show. I'm sorry, not Justin Kalbeck, um, Ryan Kalbeck uh, uh, from Circle Up, who talks about having a uh, pivot at the Series C stage where he had to pivot the whole business model. And how is that different? I mean, because obviously when you pivot at a seed stage, you, you don't have that much money expectations. But if you've already raised like a significant amount of money and you've got a whole bunch of employees and then trying to pivot that whole entire thing, have you dealt with that in your, in your life? You know, I've done minor pivots before. I've never had a let's change the whole business model pivot. Now, interestingly enough, I did have one of the senior people in our company um, probably about two years into revenue, you know, pitch to us and pitch to the management team that we needed to do exactly what you're talking about, a complete Mm -hmm. pivot. And I just thought it was kind of a panic move. And it didn't make sense because we were gaining traction. Customers were growing at a very predictable clip, everything was moving the way that we had hoped it would move. And yet he was saying, no, 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 we gotta go in this totally different way. And he had a very uh, compelling argument for doing it. At the same time, we said, no, uh, we don't wanna go that way because it wasn't, there was no reason to do it. But I can see how people can get kind of tricked into these things. And I do worry that a lot of times, you know, if, if, people, if things aren't going exactly to plan, that people will make these types of decisions without really thinking through the ramifications of it and they'll hurt themselves. So if, mm-hmm. if you have to do it, yeah, it's, it's hard. And especially because now suddenly if you're doing what you're talking about doing and what this fellow was talking about doing mm-hmm. uh, inside of my company, it would have meant that we would have had to let a bunch of people go. We would have had to change the business model completely. Mm-hmm. Then you have your board you have to deal with. If you're talking about Series C, suddenly you have a board of directors. You can't just change mm-hmm. uh, because guess what? Your investors are investing in one thing. And now you're saying, okay, we're going south instead of north. Mm-hmm. Uh, and <laughs> why are we doing that? What happens? So you better have things very well thought out if you're going to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a really good point. Um, and it seems like to me for people to really get what you're talking about and to be able to say no 
to people's logical explanations for why something should change. They need to have their values and kind of be aligned uh, with what their purpose is. And so it seems like those things are really important for really giving you a North star to, to know where to go with this thing. Is that true? Yes. Oh, well, God, yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Without question. And even more so because I think this goes to company culture. And if you're going to tell people no, uh, and if you think about what's your biggest fear, if you're going to tell people no, it's right, well, they're going to quit. Hmm. Well, you have to have enough uh, strength to be able to tell people no uh, in a way where they're going to understand it, have your reasoning well thought out, be able to have a dialogue with people, and for everybody to understand that you're moving in the right direction. But that also requires on the other end that you've built a team of people that share your values. It doesn't mean that you agree all the time. It doesn't mean that you see the same things all the time, but it does mean that you can have a dialogue in a way where they can say to you, you know what, Brett, I think you're 100% wrong. This is the way we should go, and here's why. And then you can be able to come back to them and explain your thoughts on this, and then at least everybody understands each other. And that's what happened in our particular case, was that we went through this, uh, everybody talked it through and we decided that this was the, that the direction we are, we were on was the right direction. And, uh, the person who brought this up, he was right in line and marching with us mm. as we kept on the course we were on. Mm. And it worked out. Yes, it worked out. Nice. Um, and so I want to talk a little bit more about how your specialty, which seems to be going into companies and uh, when, they're, when they're not making much revenue or they have recently lost their channels of revenue and then changing that around, um, is that, that's what you do, right? That's part of what I do. I would okay. say I work with companies at all sorts of different stages. It seems like I work with companies more in the area that you're talking about where they're kind of early stage where they have a management team that needs to expand. It's a very typical place where I'll start to get involved. Mm. And they've gone through the early stages of growth and now they're moving into the mid stages of growth. That seems to be one of the areas that I'll work with people a lot is, mm. is in that particular area. Mm. Sometimes it's later, um, you know, I've worked with nine figure companies uh, down to people just starting. Uh, so it, it can vary all over the map, but it seems like that particular area that you're describing is more of where I focus these days. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what are the biggest problems? We've already, already touched on it, like uh, you know, personnel and fundraising. Um, yes. But what what are the kind of uh, big obstacles that people face uh, in 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 really raising revenue? Well, it's it's that they have a business model which is very dependent upon them at the beginning. Mm. You know, in, in early stage startups, the CEO is the salesman in chief Mm. Uh, that is primary in almost every company I've been involved in. And sometimes part of the challenge is that the CEO may have stepped away. I'm thinking of one company that I've been working with for a while now where the CEO stepped away from sales for a bit. And then it was having discussions with him about the fact that he needed to step back in because the person that he had ceded sales to uh, wasn't up to the challenge Mm -hmm. and that we needed to let that person go. And that was a discussion which lasted over several months. And then he started stepping back in and magically sales started moving up and the company was writing itself at the same time. He needed to build a better and stronger team around him. Mm. And that was, that was his challenge at that point, because it is difficult to find really good uh, sales managers slash sales VPs 
when a company is small because the good ones don't want to go to a very small company. They want something that's more established. So if you transition too early, you can find yourself in trouble. And that's what happened in this particular case. Mm. I was just watching one of the many documentaries on Theranos. And it's so interesting because that was such a talent of hers was uh, getting people to join something that's very risky because she had such a good story. Um, and that seems like the drawback as well. It's like both the, the, the main strength a lot of founders have, but also the, the, the drawback as well, because you can get, you can start to believe your own story and then get caught up in it and, 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 and all of these different issues. What, what do you think about that? Well, yeah, Theranos, I, I, I'm not sure which one you watched. I watched the HBO one and then my yep, wife told me one. there was a, I think there was an ABC uh, podcast on Theranos as well. And both of those were just, just mind boggling, you know, just watching just uh, from just the board and the investors and how they were all bamboozled by her. And if they would have taken a step back, they would have recognized. uh, And and it's easy for me to be a Monday morning quarterback on this, but Mm -hmm. it was just obvious that, you know, she was just BSing. Mm. And that was, that part of it was interesting to me. And it also, it's also, it does come back to integrity, which Mm. she clearly didn't have. Comes back to building the right culture around yourself, and then also I think from if we're going to personalize this from the CEO standpoint, you have to have an ability to listen to people around you. Mm-hmm. And let's let's ignore Theranos because she she clearly was fraudulent. She clearly had a bunch of issues. Mm-hmm. You know, what hopefully anybody listening to this has, mm-hmm. but the CEOs that are scary to work with, um, and the ones that I've seen both in my career uh, working with uh, and, and also coaching people and is, are the ones that just are so egotistical that they can't take in data from other people, that they just believe they're always right. Mm-hmm. And you may get lucky for a while, you may get lucky for even a longer while, but eventually it catches up to you. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to listen to other people. You have to be able to have people tell you constantly, no, you're wrong. And uh, that there's another way to do things. And if you constantly think you're the only person that knows anything, well, then you're limited. Mm-hmm. And I think in one sense, that's probably part of the Theranos story. Uh, the, other, the, other, the other part was obviously the, the fraud that was being perpetuated. But to take it back to startups, as a CEO, you want to surround yourself with smart people who share your values, who also have the ability, if you create the right environment, to be able to tell you when you're wrong mm. and then you have the ability you have to have the ability to accept it. Mm. Yep. I think you're right. Um, and so I'm really interested in why you particularly started a semiconductor business. Um, I'm, I'm so interested in these cause, cause, uh, so much of what gets reported on in Silicon Valley is about the sexy stuff, you know, like, like music and all these other things. Um, but they're like semiconductors. I'm so interested in the stories of how somebody gets into that. Um, oh, okay. Well, for me, it was in college because uh, I loved uh, I loved electrical engineering, and then I started studying analog electrical engineering in college, and I just thought that was great because it wasn't it wasn't ones and zeros on the digital side of things. Uh, so it, it really required this almost black art part of it if you if you understand how semiconductors work and you, and you understand how analog ICs work um, it's a real art to be mm-hmm. able to do that so I happen to come around at the right time 
where you know semiconductors this was in the early 90s where um it, it was still an upsurge this is long before uh uh, the huge upsurge in, in software businesses. Mm. And I joined a company named Maxim Integrated Products, which was uh, at the time was about a $40 million revenue company. And then mm. I was there for 10 years. And that company grew to over a billion dollars in revenue during mm. my time there. Mm. So it was a huge success story. Uh, it was one of the 10 most successful stocks on the NASDAQ uh, during the 90s. It was, it was just extremely well run. Mm. And I just enjoyed being in those businesses. And then after I left, I wanted to eventually become a CEO, start my own company. But the problem was, is that uh, the great engineers, and this was a very engineering driven business where you either had the IC design engineers who could do this type of work. And there are a small number of them that are really gifted, or you really couldn't start the kind of company I wanted. So uh, by a little bit of luck, I, lucked into this deal where I became an entrepreneur in residence uh, at Crossland Capital in San Francisco. And I happened to know the managing partner there. And uh, I was between uh, I was between things and I sent him a note and said, hey, look, I'm available. And he asked me to come up there and spend the day with them because they had this idea that they wanted to share with me. Mm-hmm. And he talked about this idea of starting an analog IC company mm-hmm. and asked me if I'd like to be the one to start it. And I said, sure. And that led to me becoming an EIR, starting my company. Uh, interestingly enough, they didn't invest, which is another story. Uh, and then uh, building my business. So at the time though, uh, to, to your point, analog IC companies and IC companies in general were already in the downturn. This was 2009, oh. 2008, 2009 timeframe. So you were already seeing uh, VC shy away from them more and more. And then the Great Recession hit right in the middle of our fundraising. It was about the worst timing that we could have. We already had uh, a term sheet, uh, what's called an unfilled term sheet, which means we had it half-filled, which means we had one VC already on the hook. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were trying to raise $11 million. We had five and a half of it raised. And then we're looking for the other five and a half. And magically, the whole bottom of the world dropped out. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, the one investor that we had hung in there with us mm-hmm. you know, for over a year. Uh, as we waited kind of for everything to thaw out. But at the, to- at, the, at the same time, less and less VCs were investing in these types of companies. And when we got our funding, which was in 2010, we were the only company, semiconductor company in the Valley to get Series A funding. Only, only one in 2010. Only one. So it's either luck, timing, skill, I, I, probably all of the above. We just got really lucky because we had 63 investors pass on it we only had like two or three more on our list and the 64th one invested so we were really lucky and that took three meetings it was unbelievably easy but we had all this pain to go through in the middle yeah and and just not giving up in that was there ever a time where you're like i can't do this anymore um i actually i i think i was just irrational quite frankly (laughs) i never felt that way i was scared because it's like what am i going to do if this fails but i also had this thought process that you know what i if i'm going to fail at this and we're going to fail at this then i want it to be not because i gave up but because there are no other people out there that can possibly invest Mm. and that that was my thought process and then we just lucked into it Mm. at the end where we just found somebody who uh, had invested in these types of companies before, believed in the model, believed in the team, and then we were off and running. 
So you, there's something you mentioned a little bit earlier about you've you witnessed what it was like to be in a really well-run business. And what was the name of that business again? Oh, that was Maxim, Maxim Integrated Products. And that yep. was just a fantastically run company. Mm -hmm. uh, Jack Gifford, who was the CEO, he passed away about 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And he was one of the founders of AMD, by the way, also, mm -hmm. uh, with Jerry Sanders. And, you know, Jack knew what he was doing knew exactly how to build the company he wanted. Uh, he had tremendous ego about him too, but he built this company which just had, you know, talent on top of talent. You know, so he had really strong talent regardless of where you were in the company. Mm. He was probably one of the most intuitive marketers that I've ever worked with in my life. Mm. And he understood marketing and to build this type of company, you need to understand marketing quite well. And he understood it, mm. you know, brilliantly. So he understood marketing. He also understood discipline, focus. Uh, he understood how to financially manage a business uh, very well. So he had a company that, and this is amazing for a semiconductor company that had net margins of over 40%, mm. you know, which was just unbelievable. So mm. he had gross margins uh, about yeah. 70% at the company's peak and net margins over 40. So you're printing money uh. you know, at that point in time and very predictable revenue. It's like a SaaS business uh, today. Uh. So it was really, you know, from him, I learned a ton, you know, about how to build a company, how to recruit a team, uh, all the marketing tricks that I learned were pretty much due to him, I would say. That's really interesting. So have you ever had a, had a opportunity to work at a badly run business? Oh yeah. yeah. I, I had the flip side happen actually. Um, mm -hmm. so when I left there, I joined another startup, uh, named Lightspeed Semiconductor, which was, uh, more in the FPGA space, and it was horribly run. Mm. And I, I didn't recognize the necessity at the time. It was really my own failing of the importance of having a great team around you. I was the, um, I was the VP of marketing, and then it became the VP of marketing and sales of the company. And uh, the the team was weak. The CEO was weak. And uh, the minute I walked in there, I knew I had made a mistake. Mm. And then the whole thing kind of blew up and I was gone uh, six months after I left. So yeah, mm. I've seen the flip side of it. And mm. you learn a lot from both. Uh, you learn from your mistakes, you learn from uh, the good sides of things as well. And it seems like in the well-run startup, there is also stress there, but it's a different kind of stress and people kind of like maybe know how to deal with it or are just kind of more on top of things. And then in the badly run uh, uh, company, there's a lot of stress, but it's like of the type, like uh, it just feels like disgusting, right? Something like that. Yeah. Well, I, I would describe it this way. In the badly run startup, it's like you're flailing. It's like mm. you've been thrown into the water. You don't know how to swim and you're trying to figure out how to dog paddle. Mm. In the well-run startup, you're thrown into the water and you see the shore and maybe there's some waves and maybe it's a little bit difficult, but you know you can get to shore. Mm. I, I would say that's the difference is there's stress. Of course there is because you're pushing yourself. You have deadlines to meet. You need to grow. But in the well-run businesses that I've been involved in, there's always a focus. There's always a plan. And yeah, maybe it's challenging to get there, but you almost never waver from it. You just keep moving. Mm. And it, this brings to mind the, what I'm getting from it is essentially the, the importance of other people in, in stress as well. If you're surrounded by other people who are, know what they're doing and know where they're going, it's going to be a lot more um, fluid, essentially. And if you're around people who just kind of are mired in indecision or who are weak, uh, then it's the opposite, basically. Yeah, and, and this, this goes to something, uh, I don't know, have you read uh, Netscape's, uh, not Netscape's, Netflix's uh, 
Culture Manifesto that they're no. You should read it. It's, okay. it's online if you just Google it, Google uh, Netflix Culture Manifesto. Huh. And it's really a, a brilliant document on how to build a business and how to run a company. Hmm. And one of the things that they recommend, which I think is really, really smart, is never work with brilliant jerks. Mm-hmm. You know, the people that are super smart, super gifted, but when you look at their pluses and minuses, they're going to insult your team, they're going to piss everybody off around them, and uh, they're not going to be disciplined in their approach. So, yeah, they may be brilliant, and you can look at them and you can say to yourself, I can manage this person. <laughs> and I can, and I've, I've, I've made that mistake myself, and then the reality is you can't. Yeah. And if you get rid of the brilliant jerks, hire people, you know, it all comes back to the culture that you're trying to build, hire really smart people who share your values. Um, that's how you can eliminate a lot of the extra stress you don't need because those brilliant jerks in times of true crisis are going to be the first people that run away and flee the ship. Mm. And you can't have that when you have crisis. Mm. Interesting. So I want to bring it back to startups and raising money and uh, companies that should bootstrap, companies that shouldn't. Have you worked with a company that has bootstrapped and uh, they had made it to a pretty high yeah. level of success? Yeah, I, I have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and are yeah, go for it. Mm-hmm. No, no, go go ahead. Ask your follow. So yeah, are 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 those companies? Is it easier for them once they've made it because they have don't depend on those outside outside sources of investment? Like what's the, what's the feeling like in a company that's kind of doing well at a bootstrap level? Um, it's, it's, no, it's not easier actually because they have the same challenges. Mm. I think the, the, the challenges are they have less guidance than a company that has a functioning board. And boards are a many flavored thing, you know, uh, in, in dealing with startups early on they're, uh, their usefulness and I think there's this mythology about being on a board and how great it is and everything And the reality is it's it's really overrated in most cases. However, um, there is guidance from them, especially if you have uh, Good investors who are working well with you. There is guidance that you get and one of the things in bootstrap startups that I've seen with the startups I've worked with is that there's less formal guidance on what they're doing mm. And they are lacking in having people to work with that can help them steer the company. And that's part of where I would come in. It's almost like I'm acting like a board for them mm-hmm. in some of these cases where they don't have a formalized board. Sometimes they'll have a board of advisors or if they have a board, and these are the ones that get, you get very nervous about is when it's a family member, you know, driven board type situation, those can be, mm-hmm. you know, from difficulty. Uh, and more often than not, what you see is bootstrap startups where they are starving for guidance, starving for somebody to help bounce ideas off of because now suddenly they've achieved this level of success that they never expected to. And now what do they do? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Totally different than what I was expecting. Um, oh, okay. Because <laughs> well, I, I had this impression because basically because the hype of what, 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 what it is right now when you start a company because there's this kind of anti-VC mentality going on yeah. in startup culture. So, and they talk about bootstrapping as the, as the highest good. Uh, but it's interesting that you just gave that example and it makes sense. Um, yeah. Yeah. Now early on, I can see it, you know, early on, if, if you're bootstrapping and you don't need a board to get to where, where you're going to be, you don't need investors, um, then they ain't nothing wrong with that at all. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but at the same time, where are you going to get your guidance from? 
Yeah. Where, where are you going to get the people to really talk to? Um, and, and this is, I, I think, one of the biggest challenges from a CEO perspective is who do you talk to who has your best interests at heart? Mm. You know, because if you go through the list, it's a small number of people. It's not going to be your board. It's not going to be your investors because your board and investors, you have to be careful what you tell them. Because if you tell them too much about your concerns and worries, they can yep. lose Yep. And then you have a whole new set of problems to deal with. Mm. Don't want. It can't be your spouse because you're, because if you hold all your stuff in and then go home uh, and then lay it all on your spouse, well, that's a recipe for divorce. Mm-hmm. Well, that doesn't work. Um, it, it, it's hard. You, it, it's, it's hard to find people that you can get really good guidance from that can really help you. And their only interest is you. Mm. That's so interesting. And, and I'm coaching therapy. Uh, so these are the things that can kind of help with that essentially, or I've heard even a network of building a network of other CEOs who are in, or have already done this basically. Yes, exactly. That people, any or all of the above, I think are really good. Yeah. You know, finding people that uh, another CEO, if you have a CEO network uh, that you can talk to, that really helps. I think that's a really smart way to go. Hmm. Um, I think if you can find somebody, uh, who can coach you, that's, that's a good way to go. If you can trust that person hmm. that helps, uh, all of those things are, are good. Sometimes, uh, I had a very good friend who was in the media business, so totally not technology related. And because we had been friends for so long, I could talk to him and because I trusted him, uh, yeah, maybe he couldn't advise me on the technology decisions that we needed to make, but he could certainly be somebody I could talk to. And he could help with a lot of the human decisions that I needed to make. Yep. And that helped immeasurably. So I, I, I'm really a big fan of kind of calling out people for their good work. There's in our culture today, there's a lot of calling people out for what they're doing wrong. Uh, I want to yeah. call people out for what they're doing right. Who are some investors who do provide that guidance who are, who are ones that you look to when you, you would start a company? Oh, well, I think a lot of the investors, sadly, that I worked with are mm-hmm going away, especially on the semiconductor side, but mm-hmm. of the investors that we had, um, uh, Gil Kogan from Opus Capital, and I think Opus is winding down right now. Gil was just a saint, mm-hmm. in my humble opinion. He was just, he hung in there with us when we got our initial term sheet. Uh, he could have easily walked away. In fact, he advised me to walk away at one point. He said, are you sure you want to keep doing this? <laughs> I said, yep, I still want to do it, Gil, and he hung in there with us. And I could always count on him, uh, you know, during whatever we were going through. So I think Gil was great. Uh, there, there are others that aren't, but Gil certainly of the people that I worked with was, mm. was really, really good. I would, I would point to him. Cool. Um, so if you had to do it all over again, would you do the same thing? Would you still be in this industry given all the stress and everything like that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think, you know, um, I, I have this theory on, on life that is kind of like, I, this is an analog term about, I don't, are you familiar with Monte Carlo simulations? Nope. Also financial, it's also a financial analysis term as well, but in analog ICs, you would use Monte Carlo simulations to figure out, figure out and process technology, you know, at the edges of a technology, how's your IC going to work? And it's the same thing in life. If you think about all the different variables to, that go into success or failure in life, um, there are all these different things that go into it. So, you know, we can think, you know, great, we succeeded and therefore we know all the 
mm-hmm. all the things that there are to know, but there were all these other factors that had to be taken into account to get there. Um, and maybe you just happened to get the, the edges of all these different things to happen to make it. So yeah, I do it over again uh, with all the issues that we had, with all the failure that we experienced. Uh, I'd do it again, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, well, so that we've got a couple minutes left and I wanted to ask what is kind of one article, idea, book that you've read, piece of advice you've gotten, a conversation you've had that's really just kind of stuck with you in the last month or so? Um, the, the thing that stuck with me from a business standpoint is the importance of sleep. Mm. Uh, there's a great book. I can't remember the author. I think he's from UC Berkeley called mm. Why We Sleep. And that book was transformative to me. Mm. And when you're thinking about, you know, business books, you don't really think about, uh, the necessity of sleep. But when you start reading about what happens to you when you don't sleep and the, all the issues that you face, uh, you know, for, for everything from creativity uh, to focus to obesity to heart rate problems to diabetes, etc. Uh, yes, some of those are business related, some of them aren't, but sleep is paramount. And if you're going to build a startup, you may think, yeah, I'm, I'm going to grind and I'm going to sit there and, you know, work 16 hours a day. Well, you probably won't. Mm. And you need time to recuperate, you need time to sleep. And for adults, uh, I think the recommendation is about seven hours of sleep a night. And if you can go to bed eight hours in advance, you probably get your seven hours. And you'll find uh, in, in your journey that getting sleep is a critical part of success. And I think it's highly overlooked. So that, that one concept to me really stood out of things that I've learned in the last month or two. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Uh, so how can people find more about you, more about what you're, what you work on, um, how you help? Uh, it's pretty easy. I, it, there are two places to find me. Most people find me through Quora. Uh, so if you just, uh, go on Quora and, and look for my name, Brett Fox, you'll find me there. Or you can go to my website, brettjfox.com mm. and you can find more about me there as well. Cool. So this goes out to any listeners who need a coach, uh, to help them figure out how to scale. Talk to Brett Fox. All right. Thanks, Stuart. (laughs) Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning into the show. If you liked it, please go ahead and find us on iTunes or Spotify and hit the subscribe button. I'll publish each episode by Monday morning before your commute. So make sure to check in then. And this is a reminder to just own your crazy because the challenges that this world will be facing over the next hundred years will require us to think way outside the box. As Hunter S. Thompson said, when the going gets weird, the weird turn pro. Thanks. Have a great day.